You are listening to audio from New Life Foursquare. For more information about our church, you can visit us online at newlifefoursquare.org. This past June, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office issued patent number 10 million. You know what a patent is, right? It's like proof that whatever you invented is original, right? Is yours. And the patent office delivered 10, has up to this point in its history, has delivered the 10 millionth patent. In other words, 10 million patents worth of innovations which represent trillions of dollars that have been pumped into the global economy. Like 10 million innovations to promote the progress of science and the useful arts. Maybe one of you has invented something or will someday. But the idea is that there's 10 million new things in the United States inventors have discovered and designed and created. That's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of new things. I can't can't help thinking that that fact is is related to the idea that we were made in the image of God and that our creativity as human beings is connected to the source, the all-creative one who is constantly doing new things. In fact, if you go to the... uh, the U.S. Patent Office in Washington, D.C. Outside of it, is this working? Choo, 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 maybe not. Okay, can you go and switch the slide, John? Outside of that patent office, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, just keep it there. There is this saying that says, the past, say the past, is but prologue. You know what prologue is? It's a prelude. It's an introduction. The past is an introduction. And uh, there was this one tourist that was driving, that was riding in a taxi cab, and he saw this saying, and he didn't know what it meant. So he asked his cab driver, what does that mean? The past is but prologue. And the cab driver looked at him and said, it means, brother, you ain't seen nothing yet. You ain't seen nothing yet. So tell the person next to you. Go ahead. Tell, if you, haven't, you don't know, they, you say, you haven't seen nothing yet. You haven't seen nothing. You haven't seen anything yet. Because, folks, God is always up to something new. And he's, meaning he's up to something. He wants to do things that are fresh, that are novel, that are up to date, that are often radical and revolutionary in our lives. And he wants to remind us of the new things that he is doing, especially during seasons where we're experiencing difficulty and adversity. I'll go ahead and switch the slide. Let me show you this. There's a scripture in Isaiah You know what? It's not up there. Sorry. Go back, John. My bad. Let me read this to you. There's a scripture in the book of Isaiah that says, forget the former things. This is the prophet Isaiah prophesying to the nation of Israel, God's people, at a time of exile and at a time of captivity. And he says, forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past. Some of you need to hear that today. It's not the new year yet, but it's kind of like a new year, isn't it, right? Don't dwell on the past. He says, I am doing a fresh, a new, a innovative, and up-to-date thing. When does it spring up? When is it going to happen, God? Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? So he asked the question, God is doing something new, but are you recognizing the new thing? And then he says, let me give you a hint of what I'm going to do. He says, I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. I'm making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. In a place where there's not supposed to be streams. 
in a place that's hard and dry and difficult, I am there and I'm making a way. God has done this throughout Scripture. New things in the context of old stuff. He tells Noah to build a boat. And then he says to Noah, Noah, I want you to build a boat because rain is going to come. Now, just think about it. No one had ever experienced rain before. That's a new thing. It's a new thing. He tells Abraham to leave his home without telling him where to go. God, I don't know where I'm going because I'm taking you, the Lord said to Abraham, to a new land. I'm leading you. So pack your bags. Say goodbye to your family. Put it all in the trail and hit the road. And as you hit the road, I'll show you where to go. He tells two million slaves out of Egypt. He says, I'm going to deliver you. And he, he delivers them with a powerful, mighty hand out of Egypt and he creates them into a new people and a new nation that would be focused and centered and built around his, his rule. He's doing a new thing. He tells the king Jehoshaphat in the Old Testament, he tells him, if you're going to face your enemies today, do it my way. I want you, instead of sending the military out in the front line of battle, I want you to send the singers. I want you to send the worship band out in front of the army. Whoever heard of that? It's a new battle strategy. God is up to all kinds of new things, and he's been working in the world ever since we messed everything up, and he's been making all things new, and he's going to make a way in your desert. He's going to make a way in your wasteland, in your wilderness, wherever you feel stuck, feel abandoned. You see, sometimes I think, this is for some of us today, listen, just because it doesn't feel like God is around... Just because your circumstances seem to communicate that God doesn't love you, God doesn't care, God has abandoned you, you're getting punished, you're getting judged, right? Just because it may feel like that doesn't mean that God is not up to something. He is still at work doing something new. He's making a way for you to be restored to him. And for the situations in circumstances and relationships in your life to be made new. Amen? <laughs> Let me prove it to you through the life of Jesus. So God is always up to something new. But here's the thing about when God does something new. The new things God is doing will always require us to face the challenges of change. It's going to require that we change in some way. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus had just begun his uh, public ministry. And he's, he's calling his disciples to join him, right? He's called his disciples, his, the, the guys that he's going to uh, teach and train. Now, you got to remember in the, in the Jewish culture of that day, there were a bunch of like rabbinical schools. There were two major rabbinical schools, but there are a lot, of, a lot of different rabbis. And when you're a rabbi, you're a highly respected teacher in that society. It was common for you to, to invite disciples into your little school, into your little, little rabbinical group. And those disciples would learn from you how to live life. They'd learn from your teaching. They'd learn from your interpretation of the Torah, right, of the law. And Jesus is the newest rabbi on the block. And he's calling all of his disciples. And one day, he calls this one dude named Matthew. Now, Matthew was a tax collector. 
Now, no, none of us really like, you know, the organization of the IRS. I get it. So it would have been kind of the same back then. Tax collectors didn't have a good reputation. In fact, they were considered cheaters. They were cheating and making money off their own people. And they worked for Herod. They worked for the Roman government. And when the Roman government said, charge these people, let's say, you know, 5% tax, the tax collectors would say, okay, I'm going to charge you 10%. They'd give the 5% that was required to Rome, and they'd keep the rest of it for themselves. So they became really wealthy off the poverty of their own people. So tax collectors were not very popular. But Jesus calls this guy named Matthew to be his disciple. And Matthew, amazingly enough, decides it's time to shut down his tax office and to follow Jesus. See, when you were a tax collector in those days and you decided to leave tax collecting, you could not go back to tax collecting. That was a final decision. He makes this decision, and uh, I love this. In order to celebrate his decision, Matthew calls up. He gets on the Twitter feed, and he starts tweeting. And he says, hey, all you guys, all of my tax collecting friends, all of my sketchy friends, that got rich off of the money of their own people. I'm calling you to celebrate with me a decision that I've made to follow this new rabbi in town named Jesus. Come to my house. And so Matthew holds a party. Let's read it. Go ahead and switch the slide, bro. It says, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi. And Levi is another name for Matthew. He's sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Just like that. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house with a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were eating with them. So Matthew invites all of his sketchy friends. And he probably lives on the ritzy side of town because he's a wealthy dude. And they all gather. And it's probably a party that the word gets out that Jesus is having a party with tax collectors that day. And the strangest things happen. The strangest thing happens. The Pharisees, who were the religious establishment of that day, the guys that were like, you know, we're, we believe in the, the, the Torah, the law of Moses. you got to be righteous. And they represented the institution of religion of, of Jesus' day, a okay? very conservative religious group. The Pharisees show up at the party, and they... Observe what's happening at the party, and they see Jesus, and they pull aside Jesus, switch the slide, and they say, they say, I'm sorry, they pull aside his disciples, and they say, hey, you guys, why is it that you eat with and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why, why do you hang out with these people who are unclean, who the religious establishment has said they are cheaters, they are lowlifes? You shouldn't be caught hanging out with that bad crowd if you want to be a godly, good person. And, of course, they must have been talking to the disciples really loud because Jesus overhears the question. And Jesus himself steps in and he answers the question. Next slide. He says, is it, it is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. <laughs> I love this about Jesus. It's a subtle way of him saying to the Pharisees, you guys think you are the healthy ones. Because how many of you know spiritual pride can blind you, right? Spiritual pride can blind you. Jesus says, man, you know what? Um, I haven't called the healthy. 
you guys who think you're really righteous, I've come to the ones who know they're not, who know they don't measure up. And I've come to call them, and I've come to hang out with them, and I've come to invite them into relationship with myself. And then they said to Jesus in response, check this out. So they said, Jesus, John the Baptist's disciples, all right, these guys often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours, they go on eating and drinking. So it, there's a little clue here. It's possible that Matthew picked the wrong day to invite Jesus to his house. You know why? Because for every Jew, the law commanded that they fast at least once a year. Do you remember the day they all fast? On Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Every Jew knows this, right? You fast on that day. That's the day that the priest goes into the temple and they, you know, atones for the sins of the people and all that. But if you wanted to be a good, godly person, the Pharisees uh, created other fence laws. One of them was that if you really want to be a good, righteous person before God, you, you need to not just fast once a year like the whole nation does. You need to fast twice a week. Now, how many of you have ever fasted? Don't raise your hand. It's okay. Uh, it's, not, it's not easy, all right, to fast sometimes, right? We're talking about, and when I say fasting, I'm not talking about like a media fast or anything. I'm talking about no food, right, just only water. So in the minds of the Pharisees, if you are going to be a righteous person, okay, in the minds of every Jewish rabbi in every rabbinical school, you're going to be my disciple, then you need to learn how to fast twice a week. This is what we do. And let's just say the, the days that you're supposed to fast are Monday and Thursday. Well, guess what? We think Matthew invites Jesus to his house on a Thursday, <laughs> which means Jesus could have said, oh, you know what, Matt? Listen, in my school, we train people to fast on Monday and Thursday, so, so I can't accept your invitation because I know when I get to the house, you're going to have food. And it, today is not a feasting day. Jesus doesn't do that. Interesting. Interesting. He goes, let's go. Let's party. Where's the food? And so the Pharisees go, how could you? I don't get this. Every rabbinical school, including John the Baptist's disciples, are fasting on this day. And here you are, Jesus. Like, here we are fasting with the saints. And here you are and your disciples feasting with the sinners. What's Jesus up to? Jesus, somewhere in his way of thinking, decided he was not going to teach and train his disciples the way all the other rabbinical schools were teaching and training their disciples. Instead of starting with fast twice a week, he starts with, come, let's feast with sinners and let's build relationship with these folks. Because they are just as hungry for God as the rest of us. And God is here. So Jesus shows up. And he teaches his disciples by modeling, by choosing feasting with sinners over fasting with saints. He models his value for people over programs. 
his value for relationships over religion. God wants to do a new thing. And he doesn't start with programs when he wants to do a new thing. He starts with people. And Jesus is reaching people that religion has despised. And he's teaching his, his disciples to do the same. Now notice, they say to Jesus, hey, we're all fasting. You and your disciples are feasting. There's a, uh, underneath that statement, there's a bunch of hidden questions. You know what they're asking in their heads? Jesus, you, why do you fast? Why do you feast like this with sinners when we're all fasting? You know what? There's underlying questions. Let me give you one. They're also asking Jesus underneath the surface. They're saying, Jesus, why are you feasting with sinners? Why are you, watch this, feasting with sinners and approving of their lifestyle? Right? Wouldn't that be what you would ask Jesus if he came up? And started feasting with a bunch of sinners. And wait, 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 wait. You're a, holy one. You're a holy man of God. You being there is you approving of that unrighteous lifestyle. They were also asking, Jesus, why are you not fasting with all of us? Because all true men of God fast at least twice a week. They're also asking, Jesus, why are you not following the established curriculum, the program? The way we make disciples is we help them practice righteous deeds. But look at you. What are you doing? Why are you not requiring them like we all require them to fast? And then probably the most confusing one is, Jesus, why are you allowing tax collectors to become your disciples? Because only certain people are worthy of following God in this way. Has Matthew proven himself yet? Has Matthew proven him that he's, he can be faithful to you? You see, all these questions. And I want you to notice that all of these questions point to our common, especially in religion. Religion is constantly and always resistant to change. And aren't we all at times? In fact, uh, go ahead and switch the slide, John. There's a, a theory that came out years ago by a guy named Everett Rogers. And he called it the diffusion of innovation. This became a real popular theory because it describes the five different responses that people have whenever they're faced with change. Okay? The first response is we call them the innovators. 2.5% of people respond like this whenever they're you know, introduced to some kind of change. The innovators are the people that are like, yes, let's do it. I've been waiting for this forever. You don't even need to sell me on this. Let's go. Let's change. Let's move. 2.5% of people are innovators. The second category is early adopters. These early adopters, they're like, uh, they get on a board quickly because the innovators influenced them. They saw the excitement, the zeal. The attitude of the innovators, like, yes, okay, this looks like a good thing. Let's do it. So they go for it. 13% are early adopters. Then there's the early majority. 34% early majority. This group gets on board, but they only get on board when they have enough information. Oh, I need more information. Oh, okay, I get it. Got it. So over a little bit of time, they finally get on board with the change. And then there's the reluctant or the late majority. The late majority, 
they eventually get on board, but they get on board kind of like, you know, with a little bit of like reluctance. Like, ah, I don't know if I really should do this, but yeah, because everyone's kind of doing it. They're skeptical. They're constantly questioning, but eventually they accept the change. And then there's category five, which we call the laggards. These are those who are antagonistic to the change. I didn't know that there would be this high of a percentage, but 15% of people who are introduced to some kind of change are going to say, no, thank you. I like the way it is. They're always the last one, if at all, to adopt change. In other words, folks, change, no matter how you slice it, is going to be hard. You know, they say you can't teach an old dog new tricks. I'm 46 years old, man. I'm no longer a young buck. I'm getting to the old dog category, right? And I'm like, yeah, you know, I see this in me. I don't want to go there anymore. I don't want to change it. I don't want, I like it the way it is. Just keep it. No, don't change it. Don't move it, right? And more and more I see this in me, this resistance to change. Because I think the older we get, we just want what? We just want stability, man. We just want it to be stable. Don't rock the boat. No, 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 don't do it. Just keep it. Part, maybe it's part of getting old. I don't know. <laughs> Jesus says this in the verse. Switch the slide. In the verse, in verse uh, 39, he says, no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new wine. Because they say, what do they say? Old. Right? He's just describing a reality of our own human nature. But we like the old better. Most of us. There's some of you who are like, no, no, switch it, switch it, switch it, switch it, change it, change it, come on. You know, and it's different every time. I used to be like that. I think I still am, kind of. I'd like to think I still am. But let's look at how Jesus, and we're going to, as we kind of package this today, let's look at how Jesus views change and how we might respond when we realize that God is up to something new. Next verse, it says, verse 34. Jesus answered, so the Pharisees are going, how come you don't, you don't fast like us. Then Jesus answered him. He says, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? By the t- but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. This is a veiled reference to his crucifixion and burial. And he says, in those days, they'll fast. But look at the illustration. He says, you guys, you can't ask the friends of a wedding party to fast because it's not the time to fast. It's not the season for fasting. If, if you went to the wedding with, and you were part of the wedding party, and you got there with all that food set in front of you, and you said to everyone, you know what, I can't because I'm fasting, how would that come off, right? People would be like, you know what, you're kind of out of sync right now, man. Why didn't you fast, fast tomorrow, right? Fast next week. Your activity doesn't match the season that is in front of you. So Jesus is saying. And furthermore, Jesus is also talking about himself. He's saying, I'm the bridegroom. And my presence is with you in a special way and is with these disciples in a special way. And the fact that I'm here in this way marks a brand new season. A season that is to be marked not by fasting or sadness or mourning, but it's to be marked by celebration and joy. I'm bringing a new season with my presence over you in a powerful way. And I'm going to train these disciples in that way. I'm going to empower them. I'm going to do something new in them. And I don't want them to be 
moping around sad. I want there to be joy. Because the joy of God is, is our strength. So watch this. Jesus is not saying don't ever fast again. He's not saying fasting sucks. He's not saying that. What he's saying, in a sense, is he's saying, when I'm in the house, because fasting was just one little expression of the kind of um, legalistic religion that the Pharisees were trying to push on everybody. Jesus is resisting this spirit of religion. And he's saying, as a representative of that spirit, fasting that way, I've come to, to push that out aside. Because if you're fasting and praying like the Pharisees were to show others how spiritual and connected to God you are, how many of you know you missed the point? If you're doing anything religious to show people and to prove to God how good you are, you've missed the point of the practice. If you're coming to church and you're going to Bible study to prove to God just how devoted you are, to prove to others how good and righteous you are. To prove to yourself, I'm pretty good, man. At least, you know, I know I messed up all the last week, but I'll go to church to kind of offset the balance. You've missed the point. Jesus shows up and he says, I'm building a new community. And this new community is not going to have anything to do with the spirit of religiosity that you Pharisees, have been trying to push on people. In fact, let me just say this. Jesus did not, let me clarify it. He did not come to start a brand new religion. He came to build a community out that is centered around life-giving relationship to him. The religion of Jesus' day only served to restrict people, but Jesus said, I come to restore. I come to heal the brokenhearted. I've come to introduce a season of restoration. So what do we do? How do we respond when we realize God is, is doing something new? The first step you can take is restore. Say restore. Still with me? Restore your relationship to Jesus. Don't worry about all the religious rules that you, have to, you feel like you have to obey. Start with him. Come back. Because Jesus knows that you've already tried really hard on your own to be a good person. And he knows that's an exercise in futility. Even if you get there, you end up becoming really proud that you're a good person. And you're back to square one. Jesus says, don't worry about all that. Come to me and I'll show you. When he says to Matthew, follow me, you know what he's saying? He's saying, Matthew... I want you to apprentice yourself to me. Bind yourself, commit yourself to me, to follow me in a way that you're going to learn from me, you're going to watch me, you're going to listen to my teachings, and you're going to do what I do. You're going to learn how to live life the way I designed life to be lived. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to apprentice yourself to Jesus. It's not to go to church. It's not to pray the prayers three times a day, whatever ritual, religious rituals you were taught growing up. Those are all good. They all have their place. But in the end, it's about an intimate, life-giving friendship with the living God through Jesus the Christ. And he's inviting 
tax collectors and sinners to this life. So he drives the point home. Switch the slide. He uses two parables. The first one he says, no one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new one will not match the old. In other words, if you take an old garment that's already been washed, and usually what happens to clothes when you wash them, they, they shrink, right? They shrink down. And then, you know, you get a hole in that old garment, and you take a new garment that hasn't been shrunk, and you try to take a patch from there, you patch it on the old. When you wash that thing, it's going to shrink down, and the patch is going to get destroyed. And it's going to not match, and it's going to look incongruent with what's happened there. In other words, he's saying, he's using a, a parable to describe this truth, that when the new is not compatible with the old, it's best to not try to patch up the old with the new. Don't try to patch the old with the new, because in the process, you'll destroy both. Now, in context, what Jesus is talking about here, you kind of get this already from what I've been saying, but he's contrasting Pharisaical Judaism as a religion, with the new movement of the kingdom of God that he came to build, to inaugurate. He's saying, I have not come to improve on Judaism. I have not come to improve on the current religious establishment. I have not come to even fix it. I've come to create something new. If I tried to fix it, I'd destroy everything including the new. You get it? There's a time, go ahead and switch it. There's a time, my friends, when we need to recognize when the old has served its purpose. And when the new is incompatible with the old, and when you can't add anything more to the old to try to make it better, because in doing so, you'll make it worse. Now, we need to use some wisdom here, right? It's not an excuse for being irresponsible with what God has given you. Because I can hear some of you now. Ooh, yeah, pastor, amen. My job is old. It served its purpose. And I can't do anything to make it better, so I'm out of here. Hang on, just hold on, hold your horses. Pull the rein. Whoa. <laughs> you know, pastor, my wife, she's old. My husband, man, old, served his purpose. It's out of here. <laughs> you don't get to use what I just said like that, all right? Let's set some boundaries here. So listen to what I'm saying. There are some things in our lives, some relationships, some ways of thinking, some strategies that you've been using to make life easier. Some ways of doing things. Some lifestyles. Okay, lifestyles. That, frankly, you need to be flat out honest with yourself and realize these things have served their purpose. They no longer will serve you in the future. It's time to let them Stop trying to fix it. Stop trying to get God or a pastor to approve it. Stop trying to justify it in Scripture. It's time to put it away and to make room 
for the new. Don't hoard it. You ever seen that show? Right? It's crazy. You know, some, some, some of these places, you know, that there's so much stuff hoarded, they can't even get through. Right? It's tight. I get it. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, not, not like, you know, bashing that. I'm just, I'm just saying it's an example of our tendencies to hold on to the old. When we know in our hearts that the old is no longer going to serve its purpose. I have, a, I have a pastor friend I spoke with recently. And he called me up and I ended up <laughs> talking to him kind of in, in, in third party. And here's what's happening. Oh, I called him up and he found out from his doctor that... Um, He's not healthy anymore. He, he, he cannot sustain the level of stress that his jobs, which include pastoring and teaching, that the, that the pressure and the, the stress of those jobs, he said, the doctor told him, you, your, your heart is too weak. You need to stop. Amen. That's a confirmation right there. All right, perfect timing. Yes, that's agreement. So he says to, the, to this pastor friend of mine, uh, you have to make a decision. You're going to continue in the pace that you've, you've been going or will you let some of this go? And he, had, he chose just recently to sit with his counsel and he asked his counsel, told his counsel what the situation was. And the counsel said to him, pastor, um, we think it's time to go ahead and shut the church down. Like, we don't know anyone else who will come and, and replace you. And so he asked, he said, how about you? How about you? How about you? <laughs> None of them wanted to do it. It's not my calling, whatever. So he was left with the painful decision to say, after all these 20-something years, we need to, we need to, sh we need to say it's, it's over. It's done. It was great. It was wonderful. But the church, because without leadership, it will not serve its purpose anymore. Will it? So he shut the church down. And I went, whoa. Hang on. And, and part of me wants to go, whoa, whoa. We could, we could find, I, I know some people. Right? This is our tendency. But I, I wanted to respect, and this is where many of us need to get. There are some things in life that we just need to say, God, I need to come to terms with this. This kind of life is no longer working for me. And it's time to make room for the new. It's time to make a decision to go in a different direction. You know what Jesus calls that? Repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's right here. It's not up there when you die. That's not just about where you're going to go after you die. This is all about right here and right now. The rule and reign of God has come among you. Will you perceive it? And will you make room to enter it? So what are you trying to patch up that God is saying you need to remove? Because if you keep trying to patch it, it'll just make things worse. Some relationships, old friendships, for some of you, you just need to leave behind. There's some old Facebook accounts that 
you need to delete. <laughs> There's some old history you need to leave behind. How do we respond when God is doing a new thing? Recognize when the old has served his purpose. And then lastly, as I close, Jesus uses one last illustration. He says, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and the wine will run out and the skins will be ruined. No, new wine must, say must, be poured into new wineskins. Now, we don't have a real picture of this. Go ahead and flip the slide and see if I got a picture of that. Okay, that's a wineskin, all right? That was probably not the best picture, but I thought it old and new. We put wine into bottles nowadays, you know. Back then, they didn't have bottles, so um, they put wine into these skins. And what would happen is the, the fermentation process would release all these gases and eventually build pressure inside that wineskin, an airtight wineskin. And that wineskin would just stretch. And if it was a new wineskin, it had that elasticity. It had that stretchability, right? If it was an old wineskin, it had already been stretched to capacity. So if you put in some new wine that had not yet been fully fermented, right, then eventually that old wineskin no longer has the room. Instead, what will happen is it will just burst. All of a sudden, it's leaking <laughs> all over the place. When you try to put new wine into old structures, into old containers, it's eventually going to burst. So Jesus is using an analogy, isn't he? He's saying, listen, if you're going to accommodate the new Sometimes the old is not flexible enough to, to contain the new, so you need to build or find or create a new structure. God is doing something new. He wants to bring new wine, and we need to ask, is the old wine skin capable of handling the new wine? It's worked in the past maybe, but maybe now it's become way too set in its ways, way too rigid, way too fixed in its patterns. This is a Jesus is a genius, man. He's saying this parable right in front of the men who represent Pharisaical Judaism. And he's saying in context, Pharisaical Judaism is old wineskins, friends. And the new wine, which represents the kingdom of God and the Holy Spirit, cannot be contained in an old religious system. Put any religious system in that blank, folks. The only container that can sustain the new wine of the Holy Spirit is a community of people that have put their faith in Jesus. Jesus is going radical here, man. He's saying, man, we're done with Pharisaical Judaism. I've got something new. And listen, you know when the new thing happened? On the day of Pentecost. Think about this. Three and a half years of ministry on earth, and Jesus is left with how many followers? 120. He has a church of 120 people at the end of three years of ministry. They're waiting obeying his command to wait in the city, and they're in this upper room, and they're waiting because Jesus told them to wait. And then on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit shows up. He falls. Mighty, uh, a mighty rushing wind, they hear. Tongues of fire, they see, come fall on each person. And then what do they start doing? They start speaking with new languages. 
Languages that they didn't even learn, but everyone else who spoke those languages could understand. So here they are. They start going, going off in new tongues. The Holy Spirit fills them. This is the new wine. This is the new wine, right? And here it comes, and all they're just like, they walk outside, and they're like speaking in all these other languages, and people are going, what? what's going on? They were amazed, the Bible says. Switch the slide. And then it says that people were starting to mock them. And you know what they said? The mockers said this. Switch the slide. These men are full of what? Exactly. Only they thought it was real wine. Jesus said, I, this is what I told you about. I'm bringing new wine. The presence of my Holy Spirit. <laughs> this new community of Jesus were the new wineskins because they had chosen to follow the, res the resurrected Christ. They were filled with new wine. They were filled with the Holy Spirit who brings new freedom, new power, new vision, new meaning, new purpose, new connection to God, new intimacy with God into our lives. Here's the question. Are you an old wineskin or a new one? In this sense, or in one sense, this is a question about your willingness to adapt to change when it comes, okay? Your willingness to embrace the new thing that God is doing around you and then to adjust your life so that you can participate in it, right? I know, and I hear this sometimes, not all the time here, but sometimes I hear it in churches. Pastor, those songs, we don't like those songs. We like the old stuff, and that's okay. The good old stuff is good too. Yeah, 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 I get it. But are you willing, see, to embrace the new and to adjust your life and attitude to participate with God as he accomplishes the new thing? Okay, that's one way you could look at this. Jesus invites us to be new wineskins, to be flexible, to be stretchable, to be teachable so we can grow up into him. Friends, the kingdom of God, your relationship with God was meant to go from glory to glory to glory to glory to glory. That means increasing levels of newness. God wants you to be new wineskins so you can contain the new thing that he wants to do, first in you and then through you. Where are you resisting that right now? There's another sense in which we could apply this, and with this I want to ask the worship team to come on up and get ready to close this. Um, new wineskins, to be a new wineskin means that you need to place your trust in Jesus and surrender to him in faith. In the ancient world, you know what you had to do to make a wineskin? You had to kill an animal. Something had to die to create a new wineskin. And I feel like in the same way, God is calling some of you to die to your old life, to die to your old self, along with all the false versions of your old self. Switch the slide. Jesus, uh, Paul says to us, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we also should walk in newness of life. There's a death that needs to happen 
to our old life so that we can begin living the new life that Christ is giving us. And it can happen and begin today. And often, you know, sometimes you've got to end up dying to old, your old life over and over again. Know that? That's why Paul says, I die daily so I can live in him daily. And lastly, listen to this verse. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new. Say made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Folks, God is doing something new and he's inviting you to participate in that newness. And for some of you, the newness that he's inviting you to is a brand new relationship with Jesus Christ. To put off the old life, the old ways and patterns and habits of doing things, and to say, I'm going to change my direction, and I'm going to walk in the new way that you're calling me to walk, Jesus. I'm going to walk. It's not even about what, do, what rules do I obey? You know, where do I go? What do I? God will work all of that out for you. The initial choice needs to be, I'm going to surrender in faith to you, Jesus the one who brings the newness of life that only he can give. And in order for you to embrace the newness of life, you've got to die to the old. You've got to put away the old garment. You've got to put away the old wine skin and say, God, I want to be a new wine skin for you to pour in the new wine of your presence and your Holy Spirit into my life today. How many of you this morning would say, yeah, you know, Pastor, I, I think I'm there. Maybe I've had this experience before, but maybe it's, it's been rough. It's been dry. It's been like I'm trying to get rid of the old patterns and the old life, but it's been such a struggle. Jesus comes to you and he says to you, don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid. I'm the one who hangs out with tax collectors and sinners right when they haven't even repented yet. I'm there in their midst. He loves you. He knows you. He knows what you're struggling with. And he's got something new that he's doing. Will you open to it today? There's some of you here who have not ever begun a relationship with Jesus. You've never said, I'm going to finally embrace this thing called, <laughs> called the Christian spirituality or the Christian faith. The way you do it, it's very simple. You simply acknowledge that stuff in your life, there's stuff you can't improve in your life anymore. You've done all you can, no matter how hard you try, no matter how good you try to be. Religion just doesn't work. Trying to be good on your own strength doesn't work. And Jesus is here to invite you into a new community. He says, put your faith in me. Put your trust in me. This is what salvation is really about. It's not about the rules and regulations. It's not about, you know, just trying your best to be good and hoping at the end of your life you are good. Listen, he wants to give his goodness to you. He wants to give his righteousness to you. It's transferred to you when you put your faith in him. So you don't have to worry about striving to be righteous. You can already be righteous by just saying to Jesus, I trust you as my Savior and Lord. I want to follow you. And in that journey, folks, it's just like any relationship. How many of you can look back at a relationship that you began in your life and it changed your life? Husbands and wives in the room, you should be looking at your spouse right now, right? It changed my life when I fell in love with you. This is what we're talking about. 
Jesus loves you so much and he wants you to fall in love. For the guys in the room and feel uncomfortable with that, he wants you to be his best friend. He wants you to hang out a lot with him. Amen? Close your eyes, bow your heads, if you will. And I want to know this today before we close this service. There's a couple things we need to get to, housekeeping things, but in this holy moment, I just want to know if there's anyone here who's ready to do that, to say, Jesus, I'm, I'm ready to follow you. Like, I, I didn't understand it before quite the way it's been explained today. Maybe I've been reluctant before because, you know, I felt like I got to get my life cleaned up before I make this decision. No, Jesus hung out with tax collectors and lowlifes and sinners and people who didn't even repent. He was there in their midst. He's been in your life no matter all what all the bad stuff you've been doing. He's right there in the middle of it saying, whenever you're ready to give up that old life, I'm here. Is there anyone in this room today who would say, I want to make that decision today, Pastor? This is between you and him. I'm just a facilitator. If you are here this morning, go ahead and lift your hand. Say, this is me, Pastor. I'm willing. I see that hand. Go ahead. Lift your hand. I'm willing to take that step. I see that hand, brother. Just keep it raised softly. There's no one looking around, so it's okay. It's between you and God. I'm here to make that decision. All right, for those of you who raised your hands, I want you to just repeat after me. Let's all repeat this prayer. And it's just a, a, a me just helping you and assisting you with the verbiage, the words. But you're the one who brings the heart to this moment, okay? So you can pray this way and just say, Lord Jesus, I confess that I am a sinner. I am sick. But I thank you that you've come to heal the sick. You've come to f- forgive the sinner. And you've come to give me new life. I put my trust in your cross and in your resurrection. I confess my sins, and today I receive you into my life as Savior and Lord. And I choose to follow you, even though I don't know exactly what that means. But I choose you today and I trust you lead me in this new life I let go of my old life I let go of my old habits and all the things that aren't working anymore and I open to the new life of your kingdom today in Jesus name now father I thank you for all this these folks who have prayed honor their faith today and prove yourself real to them. Like this week, may they have an encounter with the living Christ and know that the decision they've made is real. Take them on this journey. And for all of us who've been on this journey, some of us need to be renewed in this truth. We today rededicate our lives to you. We thank you that you've come to call not just the healthy but the sick. There are parts in our lives that are just unhealthy and sick, and we bring all that unhealth to you, and we say, Jesus, come and heal us and restore us. We restore ourselves to you today. We thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And everyone said, amen and amen. Amen. Let's give the Lord a big round of applause. Thank you for listening to audio from New Life Foursquare, located in Harbor City and Norwalk, California. Feel free to make copies of this audio to share with others. 
but please do not charge for those copies or change the content in any way without permission. For more information, you can visit us online at newlifefoursquare.org.